Hello, and you are very welcome to join us today for our debate. Today we're going to be discussing about how to achieve all those very ambitious goals for Fit for 55. And of course, it's a complex issue, there are many moving parts, and we know we won't get there without bringing consumers on board as well. So we're going to discuss that, we're going to discuss the Repower EU plan and how that is going to accelerate the efforts for this 55% in CO2 emission reductions, and how they're going to do that with reducing dependency on Russian gas by 2027, also through diversification, through new technologies, and all the potential innovations that might make things easier for us, for us to deliver on these goals that have been set out by the Commission. Now, today I know I'm welcoming many of you from around Europe joining us online. You can put your questions in the chat box to the right of your screen and I will do my best to get as many of those as possible to our panellists in the time allowing. For those in the room as well, you have a QR code that you can scan and put your questions in the equivalent of the same box as our online audience. With that, I'm going to introduce you to our knowledgeable panellists for today. I have joining me uh, from the European Parliament, of course, Kieran Cuff, MEP, the Rapporteur on the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive. Joining us online and unfortunately couldn't be with us in the room, but we're delighted to have her remotely. We have Adela Tessarova, who is the Head of Unit for Consumers, Local Initiatives and the Just Transition within DG Energy at the European Commission. Also, I'm delighted here on stage, just next to Kieran, we have Thomas Pellerin-Carlin, director of the Jacques Delors Energy Centre. Philippe Delorme is the CEO of European Operations at Schneider Electric. And last but not least, Andreas Graf, senior associate of EU Energy Policy at Agora Energiewende. Thank you all very much for being here. Kieran, I'm going to hand the floor to you to kick off. Tell us your perspective, what's happening in the Parliament. Tell us about the reform of the directive and how it all fits together as part of this overarching Fit for 55 policy. Well, it's the, it's the perfect storm, isn't it? We have a climate crisis and we have a Ukrainian crisis uh, both at the same time. I guess the long-term the, the long answer is the Fit for 55 uh, moving to uh, net uh, zero carbon by 2050. But the Fit for 55 package wants to get the reductions of 55% by 2030. But with war in Ukraine, we know we need to move faster. So the Repower EU initiative is about three things. It's about about um, more renewables, more energy efficiency, which is so important, uh, and in the short term, finding the energy, the fossil energy we need from other places other than Russia. And of course, the EPBD, the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive, has a really important role in this because um, buildings consume 40% of Europe's energy. They're responsible for 36% of the greenhouse gas emissions. And if we can decarbonize buildings, we're doing well. How can we do that? Well, I believe we need to start with the worst performing buildings. We need to bring their energy rating up. Uh, that's good for the planet, uh, but it's also good for people. It, it improves their health, their happiness, and if we do that, uh, we're well on our way. I think within the legislation, we need minimum energy performance standards. In other words, we need to progressively rack up the standards and make sure that uh, residents aren't left in cold, drafty homes in the winter or homes that are too hot in the summer. I think we need a neighbourhood approach. The reason for that is two things. It allows us to use district energy systems and use them well. But also from a social perspective, it allows residents to work with their neighbours to, to ensure that they achieve common goals within a housing estate, within a block of apartments. Everybody working together can deliver much more than people going it alone. 
We also need to make this easier. So one-stop shops are important. A place you can go to that will give you impartial advice. Impartial is really important. So you're not speaking on behalf of an energy provider or an insulation provider. You're providing advice that is neutral. And I think that is a hugely important part of this. And then the final thing is finance. We've all seen uh, the kind of energy bills we've seen in the last few months. We know we need to move and need to move quickly on this, but we need the money. One way of doing that is the recovery and resilience plans that each member state has produced, but we also need to use the structural funds uh, to help member states move towards a low carbon pathway. That helps in the long term, but it also helps us to deal with the crisis brought, uh, that is brought to us by Putin's murderous war in Ukraine. So I'll leave it at that. You've set out very clearly, I think, the, the, the surrounding parameters and what's needed. Adela, let me bring you in there. I know you're bringing the commission perspective, but this has to work for consumers as well, doesn't it? As I said at the beginning, it's, it's complex, so we need to bring everyone on board. Hello, can you hear me? Just about, quite quietly. Ah, so I'll try to increase the sound. Great. That works. Sorry for that. Um, is it better? Yes. Okay. Um, so I think it's the other way around. I think consumers, I hear myself, sorry. Um, I think consumers can actually help uh, in this uh, effort. And um, in particular for buildings, for uh, improving energy efficiency of buildings, uh, installing renewables, you know that we have this objective to have a solar panel on every roof. And here consumers certainly can help. And what is necessary for that is um, adequate legal framework. So the Repower EU communication has actually called on member states uh, to fully implement the electricity directive, because with that, um, we enable consumers to participate in the transition. What I mean, um, the electricity directive governs um, tools such as collective self-consumption schemes, provisions for active consumers, provisions for energy communities. And these are not implemented in many member states across the EU. And it comes at the wrong moment because by participating in the transition, consumers can actually access better prices. So they can access more affordable energy if they generate the, electric the electricity themselves. So for that, we absolutely need full implementation of the electricity directive. And this will indeed allow consumers to participate in individual or uh, collective self-consumption schemes. This is particularly relevant for apartment buildings, which can form a self-consumption scheme. It doesn't requ require any legal personality, and it's something that can be done per building. Then we have energy communities, which have legal personality, and the Electricity Directive uh, governs citizens' energy communities, which is one step above what is possible in the Renewables Directive. So these are citizens' energy communities where, for example, citizens from cities can join um, renewable production schemes in the countryside. They can invest in them and therefore can participate in the green transition. Or, of course, they can join um, citizens' energy communities locally and produce electricity uh, in a district and share, produce, share, sell between themselves. This can also include energy poor consumers. Who can, who can be supported by municipality, for example, to join these type of schemes for free, or they can be supported by the other members of the energy community. In, in, in this way, we also allow those who cannot afford 
uh, renewable uh, solar panels themselves to participate um, and actually join the Green Revolution. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Adela. And again, I do appreciate you taking the time to join remotely. Um, let me turn, Philippe, to you um, and ask you about what Schneider Electric's position is on this. Are there gaps that you see in the plan ahead that we have at the moment? So first of all, I think the first speaker highlighted that very well, but the sense of urgency is here, finally. Uh, it was about carbon a couple of years ago. Now it's about also energy security. And I think we all realize that no energy, no economy, no life, no nothing. So it's time to move. And there is a real emergency. I would say that's the only good news that's coming with the war. But if that helps to really accelerate Europe towards uh, a green economy, that's actually, le let's take it on the positive side, that's what we need. So there is no choice, we have to move. Now, what's clear, and we are a technology company, is we are doing a lot of homework to test all the options. And what we see today is the technologies do exist to solve most of the issues that we have in buildings. Uh, we just released actually a paper today uh, that has been going through uh, 20 countries across the world to look at uh, um, the results of putting in place um, uh, green technologies and see the output. And what, what we did was to combine three things. Uh, one, indeed solar panel on the roof. Second, energy efficiency and digital technologies that drive energy efficiency. Uh, third, electrification of usage, which is a lot of transition to heat pump, but not only. And when we combine the three, we do realize that this is where the magic does happen and where really the output are fantastic. A few figures here. We see that by combining this across different segments, residential, not residential, and so on, we see reduction of carbon by 2030 of up to 80%, 80% carbon reduction by 2030 on what is 40% of the carbon footprint in Europe. For consumers, payback or reduction of the operating costs related to energy, 20 to 80% at a time where energy bills are going to skyrocket because energy prices are going to increase. And actually, payback or capex related to those projects in a neighborhood of 5%. So the, the bias or the urban legend that we want to kill is that that's not science fiction. That's practical. Solutions are available today. And we crave for, uh, I mean, <laughs> we want to make sure that those Options are known uh, by the different players, the consumer, but also the, the, the European commissions and the authorities, so that there is a mix of uh, the public authority pushing for those solutions. And we, we really support what's happening in the EPBD, the Repower EU, and the FIFA 455, and also make sure that all the industries and the consumers and the customers are aware of that, so that we create much more momentum than what we have today. Heard there, uh, Kieran mentioned the Ukrainian problem. Uh, we also have a cost of living crisis as well that we need to be mindful of. Do you think Europe is up to the challenge? Not yet. <laughs> um, so we've been living through a uh, crisis for 11 months now. Um, the price of uh, oil and especially the price of fossil gas started to increase last August. The way this was addressed by politicians mostly throughout Europe was to say it's a short-term problem, everything will be back to normal, 
we just um, you know need to um, you know spend money uh, to buy our way out of the problem that is going to last for a few months and buy time. And what's, what's, that's what actually the European Commission did back in October by proposing um, a, a toolbox uh, reminding member states what they already knew, uh, which is what they can do. Um, we, uh, and by we I mean several experts, were saying already in October that this fossil fuel price crisis would be lasting for at least several years. Um, the peak of the price of fossil gas on the uh, wholesale market was reached not with the war in Ukraine, but on December the 23rd, more than 200 euros per megawatt hour of gas. Today we are down to 160. That's 10 times more than the price of fossil gas we got used to 10 years ago. So in other words, we have seen an increase of the price of fossil gas of 1,000%. And this increase will continue as long as we decide not to help Putin, or at least not to help him too much. Um, so that, to me, that's, that's the, the, the first challenge. And so, I mean, nobody has been doing anything that is remotely close to what we should have done. We have um, a, a roadmap of what could have happened. Um, 10 years ago, there was a problem in Japan. Um, the tsunami of 2011, after that, they uh, shut down temporarily nuclear reactors. But they chose to launch a general mobilization of the Japanese society to save electricity. It's called the Setsuden campaign. They changed tons of stuff, just to name one example. They uh, banned the use of energy for advertisement. You know, those big TV screens that uh, we had in Japan 10 years ago that we have everywhere now in Europe that are consuming a lot of, um, of electricity for, uh, let's say, a societal added value that is uh, uh, close to zero. No? Uh, let's be clear. Um, they shut this down. Uh, they did tons of other elements. In the end, they managed to save 15% of the electricity demand. That's massive. During peak hours, they managed to save up to 20% of the electricity demand. Currently, to my knowledge at least, there is only um, the German economics minister and the French economics minister that try to do a very soft version of that, and their plans are being to torpedoed by their bosses, uh, so, so the French president and the uh, uh, German chancellor. As a result of that, we may be, or we will likely be experiencing forms of rationing of gas and electricity in Europe this winter. Um, and to me, the fact that this is not the central topic of all debates, uh, at least all energy debates in Brussels, is extremely worrying. Because here we're looking at shutting down, I mean, in a, in a worst case scenario that is possible, the moment where we won't even have enough gas for our essential industries, like the chemical industry. And if we want to help Ukraine, we need to manufacture weapons. Some of them require a bit of chemistry uh, and steel uh, and, and, other, and other elements. So to me, that, that should be the, the number one priority. Saving energy now for, because it is a matter of national security, launching the general mobilization uh, to provide the medium-term solution, which is the largest scale-up of building renovation and renewable deployment ever in European history. Uh, that's the way we should approach this crisis, and it would also happen to help us um, uh, partially solving the climate crisis.
in this crisis, the climate crisis, uh, Andreas, also uh, Thomas seemed to allude to the fact there's a, a, an urge from politicians to get back to normal, as if there was a so-called normal. We're almost in a state of perma-crisis, we had a financial crisis, a migration crisis, an ongoing climate crisis, a pandemic which changed consumer habits, uh, the, 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 the situation with Ukraine at the moment. Um, what is the, the way to sort of bring these together and, and to actually not be in, an, in a constant state of knee-jerk reaction? When it comes to the energy crisis, I think it, it's quite clear that it's uh, we can now uh, more lucidly, uh, you know, analyze where how we got into this position. Um, you know, I, a few months ago, people were still questioning uh, whether uh, Russia was or was not a reliable uh, gas supplier. Uh, this was still open to debate. These things uh, have been resolved. Um, similarly, I think uh, the debates we had uh, after 2014. Uh, where there was already, uh, you know, an invasion of the Ukraine, and we have only seen the continuation of a war in the Ukraine since 2014, uh, we, we, we can now look back and see how we reacted to that crisis and see that we clearly failed to see uh, the dependency we were, we were uh, getting into and, and have, uh, especially in the case of, of Germany, uh, in actually significantly increased our dependency over the last years. So I think in this sense, um, we can get now in part out of this crisis by more clearly being able to assess the situation. And I think this is why uh, over the last months people have been so perhaps taken aback and surprised at how, 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 how many reversals we've seen also in the German government when it came to a lot of uh, foreign policy taboos that were breaking, uh, broken, energy policy taboos that were broken because of just how much this revealed of uh, the flawed thinking we had in the past. So that's my hope that uh, when it comes to understanding our structural dependence, when it comes to understanding how we got in the situation, we, uh, we can more clearly draw some, some conclusions from that and actually act. And to some extent, I think we're seeing that. Repower You is an example of at least um, seeing what the right solutions are, whether the governments are now willing to act and, uh, is, is an open question. I think Thomas has um, you know, raised, uh, you know, um, reasonable doubts uh, as to at least on the energy saving side we are we are willing to rise to that challenge but um, I think w just to re-emphasize this point I think uh, most politicians in Europe today understand that this conflict cannot end with business as usual so if if anything uh, I can hold on to that to say we have learned our lesson and we at least will move forward towards 2030 with, uh, with resolve. Well, I'm seeing an awful lot of reaction, uh, both online and in the room, to, to some of your comments. Um, I, I'll take a couple of them, and Kieran, you can you can answer which ones you think are relevant. Mark Johnston is asking: Is 55% enough? Does too little effort now leave too much for later? So at least double the delivery rate from 2030 onwards. I think there's uh, some questions here regarding buildings that I'm sure you're best placed to tackle. Uh, Sebastian Boltzer is saying he agrees that consumers make an important part, but how do you deal with diverse ownership of flats and buildings? A lot of consumers are tenants and homeowners need extra incentives with a very low legal barrier. 
barrier, which is again very high at the moment. Another question to you again, Kiron, with the ambitious building renovation objective foreseen for the future, do you think requirements on indoor air quality should be set by member states to avoid detrimental effects to health? There's a, a quite wide-ranging series of views there. to take in there. But yeah. um, if you you know if you can tackle those ones briefly, that take the low-hanging fruit first, and then we'll try and try. Yeah, I, I mean the indoor the indoor uh, air quality, and we're lucky to be uh, in a building on a warm summer's day with the windows open and not too much solar gain for most of us. But I think the lesson from COVID uh, is that uh, indoor air quality is hugely important. And it's not just about the uh, amount of air changes per hour. It's about measuring uh, the carbon dioxide in the room. It's about measuring volatile organic uh, solvents and other other materials that can really impact uh, on on our health. And I, I hope to include that within the context of the directive uh, itself. Um, there's a few other issues there, but maybe to pick up as well on the conversation around the table. I mean, there is an inertia, an institutional inertia into making these changes happen. And I'm very conscious at a gathering like this, we're in the Brussels bubble, we're clued into climate change, we're clued into the climate crisis. We all know we need to move quickly. But the kind of conversations I have with my colleagues from Southern Europe or Central Europe are quite different. So quite often I'm talking about energy security. I'm talking about the quality of our air in our city centres. I'm talking about saving money. So I think we have to use different ways of getting to different groups. And yes, some of the big financial institutions are rebranding themselves. The um, uh, European Investment Bank is now the Climate Bank. But actually, if you look at the numbers, only 35% of their funding is going into actual climate projects. In Dublin, uh, in my own home city, we're putting lots of money into uh, refur refurbishing um, local authority buildings. But the e EIB is also putting lots of money into a, a third runway at our airport. So, you know, there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance going on there. Uh, and I think we have to overcome that. Uh, if we keep expanding our transport, if we keep expanding our agriculture, if we keep expanding our fossil fuels, we're not going to meet our targets. And then the final kind of uh, question I want to touch on, is 55% enough? Well, actually, if you look at the small print, I think it's 52.8. It's not even 55. Um, and that isn't enough. Uh, we would argue within the Green Group that actually we need 65% uh, reductions. And these are eye-watering numbers when you look at it. Uh, I feel a terrible sense of deja vu because I was in our national government uh, 12 years ago and we said we have to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 3% a year. Now I'm back saying we have to do it at 7% a year, and that's not even enough. So I, I, it's a bit like planting a tree. The best time to do it was 20 years ago. But by all means, plant the damn tree now and make sure you convince others to plant that tree. Because if we don't do it now, uh, we will face more unprecedented weather events in the years to come, and it'll be an even harder ask. Well, um, I, I've seen some of the questions coming in, like so, talking about potential disruptions in the future. Um, um, someone's saying winter. I mean, winter is uh, not unprecedented. It comes around every year. And uh, indeed, in, in further parts of southern Europe, summer is, is the problem. Um, let me, um, Adela, ask you, we have a question here from uh, Silke Conrad asking, uh, it is great to have targets, but we're facing massive delays in supply. Raw materials have prices have gone up. Shipping costs have skyrocketed. Fuel and labour prices have all gone up adding to the problem and how should this be addressed? Adela, your any thoughts from you? And in terms of also what the Commission can do, whether that's Im imposing infringements and so on. 
not sure the question is to me um, because this is uh, I think maybe Schneider Electric would be able to answer this question better than uh, than I can. Of course, we have a supply side crisis, um, so throwing more money on on that might not necessarily be a solution. Um, but I think uh, there is a work that the Commission does on supply chains, working with um, with renewable suppliers, uh, uh, with, with manufacturers. Um, we have restarted our efforts to um, to support production of, of, of solar energy in Europe. So I think there is a lot of work that the Commission does directly with the industry. Uh, we're also working on removing barriers um, on the side of permitting. Um, uh, both for renewables, but also for energy efficiency. Here it's more, for example, the work we do with cities. Uh, in my unit, we work with cities through the covenant of mayors. And uh, one of the questions we ask them, is there something you could do on uh, on speeding up permitting procedures or removing permitting procedures for building renovation? Uh, for example, such as the, uh, the region of Brussels has done recently. Um, so these are things that uh, where the commission can help but of course, we are not the suppliers of materials. So maybe Schneider Electric might have more insights into this question. <laughs> there are supply crises everywhere, so no doubt about that. Frankly, I think we'll mitigate them. Now, there needs to be a European policy to support, indeed, re-onshoring of a lot of those technologies, uh, solar panels and so on. More immediately, uh, we were having actually discussion with uh, uh, the, the Commission of the Taxonomy, the fact that today electrical equipments uh, and electrical technology is not vastly included in the taxonomy, in my view, is more than counterintuitive. Just at a time where last week, gas turbine were back in the taxonomy. I'm, I'm looking at that saying, seriously, uh, doesn't fly. So there is really a point here, uh, including the fact that there are many European leaders in the field of electrification to make sure that Europe takes care of a couple companies that will be pivotal to make sure that they are not negatively impacted by a taxonomy that does not take the point. So I think there is a point on taxonomy which might look technical, uh, but when I look at Schneider Electric that has been rated in 2020 the most sustainable company in the world, a European-based company, I think we are very proud of that. Uh, hearing from the Commission that at this point that's not part that business is not part of the taxonomy, is very counterintuitive. So now, on, on the broader question of supply chain, there clearly needs to be a European strategy to make sure that indeed there are European champions in that field of electrification, that we are proud of them, that uh, somewhat we support them, within fair market regulations, of course. Uh, there will be tension in semiconductor, and uh, the fact that because uh, digital will be a big part of that, Actually, electrification also goes with power electronics, which are very dense into electronics. So there needs to be a very strong support there. Very surely a strategy on rare earth material, which will be very critical, cobalt, tungsten, stuff like this, which will go into batteries and stuff like this, support the industries of battery, support the industries that goes after digitization electrification. Uh, but I would say, do we have today the supply chain to fulfill the immediate needs that the, what needs to happen in Europe? The answer is yes. Now, for do we need a stronger uh, industrial policy to support uh, sovereignty of technologies in Europe? Clearly, there is more work to be done. 
Well, Tom, I'm going to pick up. I, I know you, you were talking somewhat geopolitically. Um, and uh, indeed, a question here from Mike Parr is if you, you're mentioning rations and that, who would it, how would those be implied? Would it be at a pan-European level or should it be every member state for itself? I also see a question here from Giulio Galdi saying, uh, thinking about the increasing problems arising with increasing demand on raw materials. How do you avoid that dependence on Russia becomes dependence on China or, or other questions of that nature? Um, your ideas on, on what we've been discussing there, but particularly with those two points. Um, yeah, m maybe uh, let me pick that one up. Um, so the kind of dependence, uh, so the kind of the nature of dependence to fossil fuels and the nature of dependence to critical minerals um, are two totally different dependencies by nature. Um, so put them on equal footing to me makes no scientific sense whatsoever, no political sense whatsoever. Uh, doesn't mean that we should not manage, obviously, uh, uh, that. Uh, let's just take a concrete example. Uh, we're living through uh, the cost of the economic cost of our dependence to fossil gas. Fossil gas price increase on the wholesale market. This directly increases the price of gas for households and for the electricity sector. When the price increases on the fossil gas market, just, it's just a matter of days where we see the price of electricity rising, the price of uh, gas for the chemical industry rising, and it puts us into intense pressure. Uh, and as Putin is cutting us gas supply by two-thirds for now, maybe 100%, uh, well, 100% actually as of yesterday, but maybe forever, um, um, then we're talking about, in a few months, putting out of business, or at least temporarily out of business, uh, hundreds of companies, worsening the supply chain problem that you've just described, creating inflation, that is big enough for the European Central Bank to increase its interest rate. Then let's imagine, you know, we did everything right, like we planted the tree 20 years ago, uh, now we have electric cars everywhere, we've got tons of wind power, etc., etc. And let's say that for some reason, uh, the biggest supplier of the world of lithium, Chile, uh, stops supplying lithium to Europe out of geopolitical reasons, because, I mean, that's, let, let's just assume, like, for that, just, just as a matter of principle, what happens? In the short term, nothing at all. Worst case scenario, the price of batteries and cars, new cars, would increase in a few months. But that would not change the economics uh, of where we are living um, you know, in, in the short term. So those are to two totally different uh, pieces of the equation. Um, briefly, one thing on when it comes to buildings. Um, I don't like when we are talking about consumers in buildings. That makes no sense. In buildings, we've got owners and users. We don't have consumers. Uh, in some residential building, like my mom's house, the owner is also the user. Uh, but, you know, I'm a user of my flat in Paris. I don't own it. I'm not a millionaire. Um, and um, this building, you know, a lot of service buildings, like schools, uh, offices, are owned by people that are not the users. Uh, for instance, the Jacques Institute, we're renting a flat, uh, sorry, not a flat, an office uh, in, uh, in Paris, and uh, uh, it is cooled at 21 Celsius degrees uh, through air conditioning in violation of French law, but I can't do anything about it because I'm not the owner of the building. So what do we need in order to trigger ch change? We need to work on owners, not on consumers. With owners, we need to tell you guys um, you can't rent or sell a building that is not energy efficient. And so that's mandatory energy performance standards. To me, that's vital. We will never get to the decarbonized building sector without mandatory energy performance standards, clearly. 
Um, this is also vital to provide demand certainty for the supply chain, to make sure that companies like Shendo Electrics and Saint-Gobain and many others know how many buildings will be uh, renovated. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, so how many buildings will be, will be renovated and they can invest to make sure that they scale up. They increase their production by you know, 20% every single year, uh, scaling up by you know, a factor of five in five years and 10 in 10 years. And then we need financing. Um, and here, the financing has to be, first and foremost, private financing, because those building owners are wealthy. Half of the uh, houses rented in France are owned by the top 1.8% of the French people. Um, so they have money. Uh, how do we make sure that this money is invested? Mandatory energy performance standards definitely help, but we need also banks to step in. And that's the critical importance of another piece uh, inside EPBD, the mortgage, uh, so mortgage portfolio standards. To make sure that we push private banks to invest in housing renovation, we know how to do that financially speaking. I mean, the UK has been doing that uh, in 2006 with the green loans. That's the financial mechanics behind that. But we need a law that pushes private uh, banks to supply um, uh, cheap loans for building renovation to building owners. So you wanted to add? Yes, I did, because um, I think I fully support uh, the ideas that, that uh, Thomas has just presented, and, and uh, Karen, I think, also highlighted the importance of minimum energy performance standards. I think what's often not uh, discussed with uh, or understood uh, at the same level is also the need to regulate the heating appliances we're putting into those buildings. So when, when Thomas speaks about minimum energy performance standards in some, in some countries that's regulated uh, with regards to primary energy, uh, and in that sense, uh, it, to some extent, it's incentivizing clean heating. But the commission did something very important uh, in May when it was pr proposing the Repower EU uh, proposals, which is to say that they supported uh, eco-design standards that would actually phase out standalone gas boilers uh, or fossil boilers from 2029, by 2029, let me emphasize by. Um, this is incredibly important because uh, we, we talked about supply chain constraints and I think everyone is now realizing uh, due to the, the crunch we have now with uh, skilled labor, with of course also on the manufacturing side, many of the components that we need to install, that we haven't done our job to actually scale the industries we need. We've known for years in our climate scenarios that we would need more heat pumps. We knew that probably district heating would play a bigger role. We knew that uh, renewables needed to be expanded to a certain amount, but we focused rather on describing things in vague numbers as opposed to the, the policies that would really signal to the industry, this is where policymakers want things to go, and therefore we will make concrete investments into manufacturing capacity, into skilling uh, up and upskilling labor, etc. What the commission is now proposing is to say, uh, dear industry, we're, we're giving you a clear picture of in which direction uh, we expect the market to go when it comes to heating. It, it will no longer entail gas boilers, uh, at least not standalone gas boilers. Uh, and, and that gives uh, the, the, the heating appliance manufacturers that confidence to say, again, we're going to put money uh, in, into the ground here with a new um, uh, heat pump uh, manufacturing site, for example. And we've, we've seen um, now some major announcement by Wiesmann and, and by Daikin in the last months uh, and, and days even uh, that I think are really pushing in the right direction. But now it will be up for you know, governments who are, are starting to talk about such measures, also Germany with the 65% uh, re renewables requirement and the commission again with eco-design to say, we're actually going to put this into law and follow up on it. 
because uh, then uh, I think, uh, again, the, the industry will know we will have a certain market. Uh, we need to reskill res in the installers we work with and, and uh, we will make good on our investment. Kieran, I have a specific question to you from Rob Clough asking, when will there be EU unified building standards for existing and new buildings? These would accelerate the required improvement of energy efficiency. Uh, I think we've heard some ideas on this already, but uh, if you could explain that as well. And perhaps Alice Bergund is asking, how can we ensure that low-income households will not be disproportionately affected by the transition? What social safeguards should be implemented, particularly to prevent rent increases linked with renovations which could result in evictions? Oh, uh, I think on the first point, possibly never. Um, I, I think the principle of subsidiarity kicks in uh, fairly quickly, and I think member states will be reluctant uh, to allow the European Union dictate uh, uh, everything to them in terms of buildings. But I mean, the minimum energy performance standards are a way of saying, look, start with the G-rated buildings, get them up uh, to an F, to an E, and by 2050 we want everything to be an A rating. So I think we can use European directives to push member states, but I think it won't be one size fits all. Why? Because each member state has a different set of legal requirements, but also different climatic conditions. And while within the EPBD, we do take account of, I think, four different climate regions or five different climate regions within Europe, uh, I think there would be a reluctance by member states to complete, be completely controlled in everything that they do. I mean, we're trying to do that within the EPBD and, and because, because so much energy is used uh, in buildings. The issue of the, the most uh, vulnerable uh, residents or consumers or users, call them what you will, is a really important one. And it is crucial that we focus on their needs first and foremost. And if we take the 15% lowest performing buildings in Europe, the G rating, it tends to be people on low incomes. It tends to be people who simply don't have the money or even the landlord doesn't have the money to do them up. And that's where European funding has to kick in. I've mentioned two or three forms of European uh, Union financing, but actually there's about 10. If you look at the different financial instruments that member states can, uh, can access and the different financial institutions from, EPB, uh, from EIB, uh, uh, ECB, but also the European Bank of reconstruction and development, there's lots of financial institutions that can provide the money. And from the kind of discussions I've had with these, and even with the private sector, um, huge companies like Blackstone, they're saying, give us the regulatory certainty and we will move. And I think that runs through so much of what we're doing in the private sector, in the public sector. Tell us what the rules are, tell us where we need to be, and we'll start to deliver. But I think the prevarication and the discussion that is ongoing, obviously I don't think the taxonomy helps uh, because that, that will help give gas investments uh, the same amount of momentum as wind energy, for instance. So I'm very disappointed by uh, the taxonomy vote next week. But look, let's put that to one side. I think there is greater understanding of what needs to be done um, over the last 12 months. I think Ukraine is an opportunity to accelerate this transition, to look at the supply chain problems in materials, but also in terms of skills and upskilling. Uh, the, the kind of person who is good at installing a gas boiler 
over a matter of days can be really good at installing a heat pump. So these conversion courses are hugely important, both at a craftsperson level, but also for the building professional. Uh, and you know, uh, I, I, I'm trained as an architect, and I know that my own profession have a lot of learning to do. Uh, when we're in, in effect, we're in charge of dictating 40% of the greenhouse gas emissions in Europe. So I think we need to upskill uh, and up our game in terms of delivering zero energy buildings today. We can do it with new buildings, but we need to make sure that every new building is an A plus or an A, certainly an A energy rating. Uh, and then the, the last thing I didn't mention, and some of you have touched on it, is making the connection between our building stock and mobility needs. Uh, because the solar panels on the roof that Repower EU uh, is supporting can also be used to charge uh, the vehicle that the, that the resident uses, whether it's a scooter or a car. And I was in a, a, a pal's house in Dublin recently, built to a passive house standard with photovoltaics on the roof with some battery storage and an electric car beside it. And he is meeting the energy needs of the building uh, from the roof, but he's also meeting 15,000 kilometres of travel each year for his electric vehicle. And I think that shows to me what the future can be like, where we reduce the dependency on fossil fuels. As you pointed out, uh, we can move into a position where the volatility reduces and we're much less dependent on despots and oligarchs uh, to keep the energy going. We all want to be less dependent on despots and oligarchs. I think that's a, that's a given. Adela, let me just bring you in there. Do you want to pick up on any of these comments uh, that you're hearing from our panellists in the room? We've used the word consumers several times with relation to, to people. Um, is that perhaps the right word? You know, I mean, a, a roof over your head isn't really negotiable. <laughs> um, well, I think um, as one of the panellists had said earlier, um, the, the current crisis uh, might have some... Uh, positives and of course we have to leverage those positives and of all the bad things currently happening the positive thing is um, uh, that consumers are activating themselves they are waking up they don't like their energy bills and of course there are different types of consumers some people have um, energy bill included in their rent well these people will also wake up because at some point their landlord will will, will ask them to, to cover the difference and will refuse uh, to uh, to keep the energy bill as part of the rent. Um, so people are being activated sooner or later, everyone will be activated. And I think this is a good thing and we should make use of it. And whether it means that because we are not owning our apartment and we cannot install solar panels, um, well, that's not true, but okay, I'll get back to it. <laughs> we just change the fridge um, or we, we change some other appliances in, in, in our flat or we, because we cannot install solar panels ourselves, we join an energy community in the neighborhood uh, to have access to renewable electricity. Or we join, um, or we create a self-consumption scheme in the apartment building, even if we are not owners. Um, all these things are possible. And actually consumers were very lethargic. And, and the fact that consumers were not interested, we used to say that 90% of people pay their energy bills without even thinking about it. These people will never renovate their houses whereas now uh, people are interested they are interested in their energy bills they are not happy and they are looking for solutions and this is the incentive this is the impulse that we also need it's not gonna happen only by pushing through landlords or obliging people to do things you need individuals to be interested individuals to start looking for solutions and that's happening these days so let's leverage it for a good cause 
and let's make good use of, of these interested and angry consumers uh, for, for a good purpose. Thank you. Felipe, I think you had something to add. Not mention, uh, which I think is a very important one. Um, the top, one of the topics we have to address next winter is indeed making sure that we don't get out of power and, and we see a risk. And you were mentioning uh, uh, the experience of Fukushima in Japan. So Japan, fair enough. I was in Asia at that time and I remember very well did a tremendous job on forcing energy efficiency. A lot of work on behavior, which indeed we should be inspired from. But they did one more thing, which we are not doing in Europe. And frankly, I'm puzzled. Uh, that thing was flexibility. So in other words, paying, paying consumers and large energy consumers to curtail their energy spend at time of peak so that the grid does not collapse. Nobody in Europe is talking about it. While actually it's a silver bullet that we need to put in place before next winter. North America is implementing that and have been implementing that for 10 years and is working very well. Australia. Japan, which we can say has been a pretty conservative place so far, they've been doing that and it's been very, very efficient. We need this to happen in Europe, uh, which, by the way, either we do it or we'll be forced to curtail people without their consent. So the point is, why don't we go and map what could be the asset that could be curtailed and shed their load at time of peak in exchange of money uh, so that actually there is a business happening here rather than do it in a rush and doing in total panic mode and have the risk of the grid to, uh, to collapse. So it's really an open question uh, which we've shared with the Commission. We believe it's, a, it's something that actually can go very quickly. You don't need to uh, put in place tons of capex. It's market adaptation. Uh, clearly the place where it would make tons of sense is Germany where there will be shortages. Uh, but not only, and, and we believe that it's a very important quick win that actually could happen in the very coming weeks or months if we get organized quickly. Well, I fully agree with the sentiment, and, and this instrument is a very interesting one, is starting to be discussed uh, in Germany as well. Nonetheless, there, there are a type of auction already existing today just with the energy prices we have, mm -hmm. the wholesale market prices, etc. The challenge we have at the moment is that there is reluctance um, both for, with regards to household energy prices as well as industrial energy prices to really let the prices go through. And this is a, this is a problem. We need to uh, actually make use of the uh, energy markets that we have today to signal to consumers that there is scarcity in the market and let it do its job. That doesn't mean that as policymakers we should not care about the outcomes uh, for low-income households, for the most vulnerable in our society, or care about the industries and uh, add additional uh, you know, in, uh, incentives uh, and additional support. Uh, but we also need to let the instruments that are already in place that work, and we, we are seeing uh, actually uh, industrial co consumers, uh, large industrial consumers really react to the energy prices based on the historical data we've seen over the last months. Um, uh, we know this, this could really make a difference uh, this coming winter. So in the short term, I think uh, we need to have a more real conversation about how much we do want to shield consumers while supporting them. Uh, and, and secondly, I just, I, I just think it's interesting that we also need to you know, really think about what prices signals are consumers getting. So it's not just about uh, 
protecting consumers. It's about sending them the right signal. So if we want more electrification, then electricity prices should be cheaper than gas prices. That is not the case in many, many uh, countries in Europe. And, so, uh, and yet, we have a situation where I, I just think it's revealing. We have a, a country like Denmark that is, uh, you know, uh, on the one hand, has uh, lots of energy pricing those going through, okay, but that's not the point here. They have lots of planning, a very active government, one that, that plans ahead with energy markets and, and has zoned areas for district heating, etc. cetera, uh, stable government, and they've now come in and said, okay, 400,000 households are left on gas. We're going to phase them out from gas in the coming years. Uh, and then you have a, 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 a country like Bulgaria where the government has collapsed and probably won't be active for the next six months, and yet households are still starting to switch to heat pumps. Why? Because electricity prices are cheaper than gas, relatively speaking, and there is an incentive. So, you know, despite completely different opposite spectrums here, things are happening, and that shows you that if the price signals are there, Households uh, will react, uh, and, and of course, then it still has to be affordable, especially in Bulgaria, where, of course, they also have very low electricity prices, I would add. Nonetheless, I think it, it's really uh, it's revealing of, of, of how energy prices can work in, in steering things in the right direction. Uh, Thomas, uh, Iona Bear is asking you uh, what should politicians do now apart from public campaigns on energy savings? I mean, I think that's building on what we've already heard. What's your advice? So, um, apart from what is actually the most important thing that they're not doing, <laughs> um, I mean, to me, it's a, we need a general mobilization of our society. Um, we are not, or at least not yet, in a war economy, uh, Ukraine is, but we are in a situation that I would call a hybrid economy. Part of our economy still uh, is and will remain in peace mode, um, you know, um, I mean, most elements of our economy was, I mean, tourism, for instance, education, those things are still in peace mode. Uh, but we need some segments of our economy to go in war economy mode. Um, obviously, the weapons industry, because if we want Ukraine to reclaim its territory, they need to win militarily. Uh, and this will take um, literally millions of shells uh, to, to get Putin's forces out of Ukraine. Uh, but also um, a big segments uh, of our um, energy industry. Um, so we need to scale renewables and scale building renovation in a way that resembles uh, the scaling of weapon manufacturing uh, during a war. Um, and to me, uh, that cannot happen without a general mobilization of society. So we need uh, politicians to tell it like it is, first and foremost. And second, we know how to scale production very quickly. We did that in wars. We can do that um, uh, on uh, we can do that actually for peace, uh, because that's the purpose of scaling renewables and, and uh, energy efficiency uh, renovation. The, the term general mobilization here is quite important, I think, uh, to show that you know, one element we, we do in a war economy is like uh, we take a, a lot of human capital and we reshift it to the military. Now we need to take pretty much the same amount of human capital and shift it to uh, building renovation, installing heat pumps, etc. Um, currently, we don't have the public policy tools in order to do that, or rather, we've not chosen to use some of the policy tools that we have. Um, one concrete example that can be done in the short term, um, um, can we increase the working hour limits for those workers? Uh, so workers that are active in building renovation, uh, in, in installers of heat pumps, um, uh, etc. Uh, that's one element, obviously, to be negotiated with trade unions, assuming that uh, the lack of uh, uh, manpower uh, is uh, the, the bottleneck, which it is in many, many uh, uh, supply chains. Uh, doing that won't be enough. 
but that's kind of the quick fix. Then the second element uh, is uh, how can we scale the amount of people that are uh, going to those sectors and how we can also um, um, redirect some of that human capital. Um, just to tell you an anecdote, I was um, on French TV at some point and uh, um, there were sanctions on uh, Russian oligarchs and as a result of that, some building workers on the Côte d'Azur uh, stopped being paid because they were uh, being paid by Russian oligarchs to build some nice mansions uh, near Cannes or Saint-Tropez, you know, those, um, uh, th th those areas. And the journalist um, uh, told me, you know, well, um, you know, those economic sanctions are hurting those building workers, you know, what should they do? And I'm like, well, I've got good ideas, a <laughs> few ideas of what, you know, building workers could do. And still, you know, today, like, we've got building workers uh, that are, you know, building private swimming pools instead of renovating buildings. So here we have a clear lack of prioritization. Uh, and so, uh, broadly speaking, we, we need to invent something that is hybrid, something where we take some lessons from how to manage war economy and we apply that um, uh, in crisis mode for the next five years, so the likely duration of the war in Ukraine, uh, and also continue after that, maybe just in peace mode uh, uh, after uh, the war in Ukraine, but that time for climate. Um, Christina Kormenu has a question for Schneider Electric. So, Philippe, in the Repower EU, a redesign of the electricity market is foreseen. With nationalization of electricity providers such as EDF in France, the disparities within EU member states in charging stations and in buildings, can the industry keep up with these? Not sure I get the cake. I think it's <coughs> can the industry keep up with, with the, the disparities between member states, the different paces, the different uh, areas that are focused on depending on member state? I mean, it's, it's vastly different. Germany is not Malta, where we saw huge power outages because of the heat last week. But I think what matters, I mean, okay, there is a sense of urgency everywhere in Europe, number one. Number two, technologies are available to make buildings more efficient. So what we miss now is the mechanism of acceleration so that we go to the general mobilization that you are talking about. That's what we need. Now, Europe being Europe, there will always be differences of uh, EDF is, uh, let's say, a very big player in France of, uh, of energy supply, while you would have more competition in some of the uh, member states. Is it the blocking point? I don't think so. I think the, the point, the crucial point that we have here is looking at this. I mean, you take distance, you say, okay, everyone understands there is an emergency. The solutions are existing. What does it take so that we drastically compress time so that what would have, what could take, say, 10 to 20 years in normal condition, take one to five? This is the problem we have to solve. And in my mind, a lot of what Europe is doing is supporting. The thing is, how do we compress the clock? That, that's what it is. That's the problem we have. Kieran, <coughs> another question to you about, about the building situation from Sir Simonsen, uh, saying they fully agree with you, improve the worst performing buildings first, take advantage of low-hanging fruit. But renovation of the existing building stock offers strong synergies with health benefits enabled by more daylight and natural ventilation, CO2 reduction, less new mills. How can these synergies be incentivized? I think the well, the text of the EPBD will will help push uh, member states in the right direction with their long term renovation plans. But uh, the EU can't do it alone. You need 
legislation at national level and very often at local and regional level uh, around issues about daylight, around uh, air quality within buildings. So we have to be careful about trying to micromanage everything. I don't think we can do that. Uh, but I am struck by this, this sense of the two economies, the wartime economy and then the business as usual economy. I mean, I'd like to take the production lines for SUVs and convert them to heat pumps. Um, uh, and I think we need that kind of um, seriousness uh, about, the, uh, about the challenge that we face. Uh, but I, I don't think the EU can do that alone. I think uh, countries can put pressure on their own national industries. A good example to look at, though, is the early stages of the COVID pandemic, when we needed protective gear and we needed ventilators and production lines did move into producing ventilators and when it came to protection we prioritized the most vulnerable frontline healthcare workers and this point about the higher energy prices i think we have to protect the vulnerable i think we have to protect people who are currently living in poverty and yes of course we can give money back every month but you can only do that for a limited time and we found certainly within my own country that we simply didn't have the IT uh, abilities to simply give it to people on the lowest incomes. The, the IT systems didn't allow us to do that. So everybody got a check for 100 euro and then 200 euro to help with the bills. I think as we come into the winter that lies ahead, we'll really have to make sure that people on low incomes in poorly um, insulated homes receive all the help that they can get. And then as we kind of move through and move into the medium term, a bit like COVID, we need that investment in public health, that investment in epidemiology. And with the climate crisis, we need that investment in looking at every sector of the economy and moving the workforces into the areas where we really need the workers need the skills and address both the supply side shortages and the skill shortages so that in three, five years time, there is a renewed huge focus on decarbonisation, agriculture, energy, transport, uh, construction. Uh, and I think there's really good jobs in that for the next 30 years if we do it right. Yeah. I'd just like to add that, I mean, I, I fully agree that we need to better target vulnerable and low-income households. This is something we haven't been doing a good job at. And uh, I think uh, the experience governments are making now was one the German government was already making when discussing its national uh, emissions trading system, where they were saying, okay, how are we going to start redistributing these, these, uh, these revenues? And there were all these discussions. Do we have you know, kind of uh, just checks, uh, climate checks? Do we, do we target low-income households? How do we br bring this back? And this, this was before the crisis. And yet at that time, there seemed to be no urgency. So they focused on redistributing in other ways, but we knew that if this type of system is going to work in the future in a socially just way, that we would need to start building up these systems uh, and, and uh, start to be able to identify those households in, in greatest need. And the same uh, then applies if we adopt an emissions trading system for buildings and, and, and road transport at EU level. All of these things will have to be put in place. So I think um, it's not just a, a short-term necessity. It's, it's also a medium to long-term necessity that if we are going to stick to these types of uh, policy instruments, and I would add, by the way, uh, the minimum energy performance standards, we need to get better at actually identifying who really needs, uh, needs help. And I, I think the, the G rating is 
statistically indeed uh, one that is linked to households in greater need and therefore to some extent it, it serves as a kind of proxy uh, initially also it, it, it addresses those uh, buildings with the highest uh, gas savings potential for example but it's not good enough we need to really be defining energy poverty we need to be actually targeting and monitoring these things and actually put those things in place and if that requires more uh, more people in place in national local governments we need to fund those positions and we need to take this seriously and i think if if this uh, last uh, year wasn't kind of signal enough that that is needed then i don't know what will be well you've, you've summed something up very well there and we're actually approaching the end of our panel we've got about 10 minutes or so left um Adela, I'm going to put another audience question to you um, and then also ask you for your kind of closing wrap-up thoughts. Um, we have here a comment that to reduce the EU's dependence on fossil fuels, developing renewables won't be enough. We also have to make the power system more flexible. And the question is, what can the EU do to promote storage and demand-side flexibility? Um, what are your ideas around that? And, and if you can, I know it's a big ask, but it sort of encompass what your closing thoughts are from this discussion as well. So demand-side demand flexibility is, of course, on our agenda. Um, what we do from the EU side is to make sure that, again, the legislative framework is fully in place, which is not yet the case. For example, many member states are delayed uh, with the implementation of aggregators and how to link them uh, to, the, uh, to the wholesale market. Um, we also work on any remaining implementing legislation uh, to make uh, demand flexibility fully work fully connect to the wholesale market. So that is uh, that is ongoing. Uh, but demand flexibility is indeed possible in the EU. And I also hope to see more of it um, these days, because certainly it is a way how to manage demand in the economy, and how to distribute it better uh, during uh, day times and night times. Um, so there is a huge potential, certainly. Um, I could also maybe make a little comment on energy poverty, which is also part of my portfolio. Uh, we indeed work um, with member states very closely to help them um, define and address energy poverty um, across the EU. Um, the Commission has proposed the definition of energy poverty as part of the Energy Efficiency Directive recast. And we also propose to uh, concentrate energy savings, particularly uh, on this type of groups. So certain percentage of, of energy savings will have to be achieved. Uh, for energy poor, vulnerable, and people living in social housing. Um, so this is an area where we work very actively, and uh, we also work with Eurostat uh, to make it more operational and um, more practical how we monitor this type of um, uh, this type of situations, so that we can actually track, trace, and and, and monitor progress on energy poverty. Um, thank you. Thank you, Adela. Um, I was going to kind of ask a sort of wrap-up question to you all, but I rather like this one, um, Farley Kayaste saying, what are the best incentives to use this supply crisis for accelerating the Fit for 55 targets, which I think is kind of encompassing everything we've wanted to talk about today. Um, Thomas, I'm going to let you start with that. Yeah, I think we need to understand that Fit for 55 is also a matter of national security. Um, I mean, Putin's plan is clear. Um, he thinks we're soft. We're immoral, hypocritical cowards. He think we will sacrifice Ukraine this winter to get his gas, and we will sacrifice Ukraine again like we did in 2014. I think we should prove him wrong. But what it takes is not to continue to sleepwalk towards a cliff like we are currently doing. 
what it takes is to wake up, take the blindfold off, and then launch that general mobilization for energy savings like the Japanese did 10 years ago. That's the short-term fix that will really help us to survive the winter economically. And also at the same time, load that general mobilization for the, the greater scale-up for energy efficiency and uh, renewables ever done in European history. And this requires a lot of money, requires a lot of human capital, so people and workers. But this is something that we can do. Um, and if we are not able to do that in the face of Putin's aggression over Ukraine and over European security, then I have very little hope that we will be able to do that for climate alone. We have seen, at least, never waste a good crisis. The COVID pandemic showed us that societies are prepared to, to make big, drastic measures in order for something that's in the public good or the public interest. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what we need to do to um, overcome that energy crisis in the short term and that climate, uh, well, not, not a crisis, but that, uh, to avoid climate chaos is essentially just, you know, 10% of what we did for COVID. And so that's why, you know, I mean, you say there's a sense of urgency. I'm not sure there is, huh, to be clear. I mean, for COVID, we clearly saw there was a sense of urgency. Um, so, but it's definitely not the same uh, in degree and intensity of urgency in the mind of politicians, uh, sadly. Yes, so I, I think there are, within this Fit for 55 uh, uh, package negotiation or the EU Green Deal discussions, there have been these two turning points. It's the, it's the COVID pandemic and it's, it's the war uh, in, reigniting in, in the Ukraine. And I think uh, the moments right before those two turning points were some of the darkest for me looking at the current situation. I remember the sustainable uh, investment plan of the European Commission right before uh, COVID hit, and it was simply not enough. The scale of the investment that was being discussed and the, the mobilization of EU funds for investment were pitiful. Uh, and we actually had a moment then of, let's say, unfortunate circumstance that turned things around, at least to some extent, it, it helped us uh, discover more investment was possible, more spending was possible, and for the right things. Um, and and the, the Ukraine crisis can be another one of those moments. Right before uh, February 24th, I was looking at the numbers of what would need to happen, especially in the building sector, with some uh, great concern, because the understanding, I think, of policymakers of how much uh, effort would be needed in the coming years to actually realize this and not just negotiate on paper was simply, that realization was not there. Now, I think, not only have we, I think, had this realization, we have public discourse around heat pumps, around district heating, around all kinds of made, uh, energy efficiency and energy savings uh, measures that are needed. Uh, we have um, an, a willingness to, uh, or a greater openness to regulatory measures that would actually set clear signals to the market on what needs to happen. So in that sense, uh, I, both of these moments, I think, were very much needed at the moments they came in. And I, I look with some optimism, at least in the building sector, and I hope Karen Cuff can get some of his report also through the parliament and then <laughs> through the trilogue negotiations. Uh, well, Philippe, how much optimism do you have? Um, before taking that one, I, I, the, the thing in Europe is that we never really experienced big energy crises. Uh, now, we talk about Fukushima. Let's talk just a year ago about what happened in Texas. So, if you have an energy system collapse, if you want to look on the internet what it means, go chase videos of what happened in Texas. Hospital closed. 
you got no power for two or three days. It's minus 10 outside, babies dying, old people dying. That's what we have in front of us. Now, we went in Europe into something we know very well, which is COVID. Indeed, that was two years ago, three years ago, da da. And we mobilized, back to your point, a, a bit of a war system to respond very quickly. What's striking to me at this point is that, okay, we don't have a sense of urgency, we have a burning platform. I think people understand. They have not touched the risk, but they do understand. So the carbon risk, let's say it's 30 years, okay, we can get back to sleep. The energy security is touching us much more closely. Now, what we have to, for the Commission and for the authorities, how do we move indeed to a much stronger sense of urgency of executing as we did in COVID and apply it to the field of energy because what's in front of us is as serious as what we face with COVID. No energy, no life, no economy, no nothing. If people don't get it because they never experience it, I'm afraid we're going to experience it next winter. And that's serious stuff that actually the Americans are used to, uh, but we are not used to that. So that's serious stuff that needs much faster sense of execution, starting from government at European level and at national, national level. And what we have to apply is what we did for COVID for the energy crisis. That's what we need. Uh, it's, it's not all doom and gloom, I hope, but maybe we do need a little bit of uh, a kick. Uh, yeah, uh, look, we've had that wake-up call, but uh, a wake-up call is great. It's not just being awake, it's taking action once you are awake. Uh, before Ukraine, we said we have to double renovation rates uh, from 1% to 2% a year within Europe. We probably have to go further, but I think both at EU level and at member state level, we need to work backwards from what that means in terms of the supply uh, of technologies and materials, in terms of human capital, retraining, reskilling and skilling for the first time uh, to get to, to basically look at the supply chain and make sure that we can deliver uh, over over the period ahead. Uh, and I think you're right. I, I think energy security is a huge issue energy sovereignty uh, and you know it may be Putin today who knows who it might be uh, in two years or three years time uh, and I think there is there is a bit of a challenge challenge to the paradigm of globalization that if we have global supplies if we have the whole work uh, the whole world working together it'll all work out fine I think there is a sense that we need to have a new regionalism where we work together as a block to to make sure that we deliver uh, on what we want to achieve and you know in the short term it's very clear. If we insulate homes, we isolate Putin. But who knows who the next Putin is? Uh, but I think we do need that sense of urgency uh, and I, we need to have a much clearer plan and a much more in-depth plan than the Repower EU plan. Uh, we need to look all the way down through where the problems may be and how we overcome them. And if we do it right, legislative instruments like the EPBD will help the other 15 or 20 Parts of the Fit for 55 package will help. Uh, for me, the focus in the next um, six months is to ensure 
that we don't lose the ambition that we had when the Commission published it pl its plans and that if anything we increase it and that does involve a lot of conversations face to face with our colleagues and friends from other member states who perhaps don't feel the same sense of urgency that we do or some of them who in the face of war in Ukraine aren't sure what to do next. So I think we need to almost have these clear conversations about how energy efficiency and renewables will really help cut ourselves off from Putin and how that can be done in the short, medium and long term. Thank you. Thank you, Kieran, and thank you indeed, gentlemen uh, in the room and Adela for joining us online. And thank you, the audience, for your many, many questions. Uh, we are where we are with Fit for 55, and there's a lot more technical conversations, I think, that need to be had. But do stay online, follow your active, and you will find many more interviews and conversations on that matter. But for now, for those in the room, I wish you happy networking. And everyone online, we hope to continue the conversation in the future.